and welcome to the 61st episode of the Always Drive podcast, your weekly look at the latest news from the car, truck, and motorcycle industries where we take everything but ourselves seriously. I'm your host, Devlin Riggs, and I'm back in the term used loosely studio this week where I just read a fantastic story in Bloomberg by authors Brian Gruley and Jamie Butters about Geely's takeover of Volvo. If you haven't heard because... Uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe you have a backlog of episodes of this show to listen to, Volvo has been on a bit of a tear lately, and their new XC40 is selling like crazy because it's a premium compact crossover, which is like millennial catnip. Um, Among things I didn't know but learned from the article was that Geely was ranked 36th out of 36 companies in a 2008 J.D. Power quality survey, which... If you know China's reputation for quality, you'll know it's quite an impressively bad feat. But just two years later, the company bought Volvo, and in the eight years since have been given the financial flexibility and autonomy to take the company back from the brink of death to the cusp of greatness. There's so much more to the article about founder Li Shufu that you should definitely look it up. It's called How China's 36th Best Company Saved Volvo. But it got me thinking about Ford. For those of you who don't know, before Ford was or before Volvo was bought by Geely, it was owned by Ford, who basically bought the Swedish company, co-opted its safety engineering, forced some shitty engines down the Swedes' throats before cutting off any sort of investment that might help the company survive the Great Recession. While the Germany German luxury brands were thriving, Volvo very well could have been competing head-on had they been allowed to read the market and respond in kind. Instead, Ford choked the living hell out of the brand, tightening the purse strings so much that Volvo could only develop one competitive platform for its vehicles. This lack of spending under Ford and subsequent revival under Shufu and Geely is, is telling, especially as the company begins to kill off its passenger vehicles in pursuit of greater shareholder value. While the plan to kill off the Fusion, Taurus, Focus, and Fiesta was surprising and felt out of character for Ford, the truth is they've been operating the same way they were 10 years ago, but it was easier for them to strangle Volvo than their own brand at the time. While it's a shame to see what's become of Ford because of their addiction to stock price, it's exciting to see Volvo surge back into the spotlight. So here's hoping Geely can do the same for Lotus, which the company just bought last year. Now, time for your top story. While vehicles that plug in for electric power comprise just more than 1% of the vehicles sold in the United States, electric vehicles may not remain such niche products for much longer. According to a new survey from AAA, as many as 20% of consumers want their next car to be electric or electrified, which is up 5% from this time last year. The reasons why 80% remain disinterested are obvious and well-covered, from range anxiety to lack of infrastructure to the fact that batteries are a new technology that haven't yet been optimized. But those interested in EVs say that the benefit to the environment outweighs the concerns. But is that accurate? In China, the government has been offering huge subsidies to encourage automakers to build and sell electric vehicles, and the country has had the highest adoption rate of EVs of any in the world except for Norway. The problem is, their smog problem isn't going away. 
In China, 72% of the country's electric power is generated from coal, which, regardless what conservative talk radio may tell you, is not clean and cannot be made to be clean. You can merely capture and store the carbon byproduct of burning coal to create power. They're not doing that in China, though, and oil company CNPC found that electric vehicles emitted more than double the toxic PM2.5 particles that generate China's smog than do standard internal combustion engines. And if you like your statistics not brought to you by an oil company whose interests may be somewhat skewed, a University of Michigan Transportation Research Institute paper found that cars that achieved greater than 40 miles per gallon were actually more environmentally friendly than the electric vehicles being made in China. And that's just when it comes to operating the vehicles. Add to that the Harvard University and Tsinghua University study that reported that China's production of EVs, PHEVs, and fuel cell vehicles generated 50% more greenhouse gas emissions than production of internal combustion cars, and it's really hard to make the case that electric vehicles are the more environmentally friendly option. And speaking of production, that's looking like it's going to get even harder before it gets easier. I've discussed this a bit before, but the situation is only worsening when it comes to the global supply of cobalt, which right now is a critical part of lithium-ion batteries that power most electric vehicles. About 60% of the world's cobalt supply is located in the Democratic Republic of Congo, a country with a humanitarian rap sheet as long as the receipt that you get from CVS when you just go in to get some gum. High taxes, the use of child labor, and an unstable government all contribute to huge volatility in the cobalt market, which has gotten analysts revising their figures about when they think a shortage is going to hit. The answer is sooner than later, though CEO of Cobalt 27 Capital, the owner of the world's largest stockpile of go cobalt, ensures that there won't be any supply shortages, though... He does not go on to say just how much companies will have to pay for that supply. Costs would undoubtedly be passed on con to consumers and therefore delay adoption of EVs because they're too expensive. Non-cobalt company CEOs are less optimistic, with the Bloomberg, New Energy Finance, and Darlton Commodities both predicting shortages as soon as 2021. Prices have already spiked 300% over where they were in 2016, and capacity is not expanding as quickly as demand, which is a recipe for higher prices. Fortunately, several companies are getting off their asses and doing something about this. Panasonic announced this week that they are working towards lithium-ion batteries that achieve zero cobalt usage in the near future and have already been reducing its content and the batteries that they supply, primarily to Tesla. Samsung has also been working to reduce cobalt content below the 5% of batteries it currently achieves, and they're hoping to expand recycling programs that will recover cobalt from used cell phone, computer, and other lithium-ion sources. Currently, recycling rates are somewhere between 25 and 50%, so there's a lot of potential for improvement there. Chinese automaker BYD is also developing batteries with nickel-manganese-cobalt ratios that reduce the amount of cobalt, which, in addition to lowering prices, apparently extends the life of the battery, which is a win-win for companies and consumers. For even more bad news, cars aren't the only thing using lithium-ion batteries. Companies and utilities are expanding the use of modular energy storage systems to better utilize distributed energy resources like solar and wind farms and even hydroelectric generation. So 
there's another force working to increase demand and subsequently price for cobalt and other precious metals. And full disclosure, I work for a company that makes these big battery storage units, and they are flying off the shelf. So companies will have to both ramp up cobalt production and R&D into technology that uses less of it if there's any hope of averting a shortage or at least a price spike. But back to the cars. What does this mean for those of us who just want a Jeep Wrangler plug-in hybrid? The truth is somewhere in in the middle of everything. While 20% of people would love an electric vehicle as their next car, not that many are going to end up taking the jump into the technology, especially with the current rate of 80% of such vehicles being leased right now. It shows that public trust just isn't there, and we've not really mastered electric cars yet, So nobody wants to be locked into a technology that'll be obsolete in a couple of years. Cobalt demand will cause prices to remain high, but the price of gas was high, and look what that did. It spurred investment into the research and development of electric vehicles, which have lowered the demand and prices have eased up, if only just a little bit. The market will adapt, companies will continue to innovate, and while EVs aren't optimized right now, and the electrical grid, especially in China, isn't well-suited to provide clean energy for them, it won't always stay that way. Nor does it mean that EVs are destroying the planet. It just means that maybe they're not as green as we want them to be yet. We're on a good path right now, and we have an unprecedented choice in vehicles. At least until companies like start thinking like Ford. But... I don't think that's going to become too widespread. Here are some headlines. Let's see if you've heard this one before. A man's driving his Tesla Model S and decides to relax a bit. So he kicks on the autopilot mode, which is working great, keeping him in the lines and evenly spaced between cars, right up until the point where it runs him full speed into the back of an emergency vehicle. Oh, you have heard that? Like, twice before in the past two months? It's sort of becoming a thing, isn't it? Except this time it wasn't a fire truck, it was a Laguna Beach police explorer. The driver says autopilot was on, but we don't know for sure yet if that was the case. What certainly is the case, though is that the driver was most definitely not fully attentive, which they are supposed to be when driving in autopilot mode, because guess what? People who are fully attentive will be driving, not letting the car do it. So it's it's so widely accepted that people do not pay attention when the car is in autopilot mode that Shutterstock now has video of a sleeping, quote sleeping, driver cruising along in a Tesla as it drives itself. This is about the time that Elon Musk chirps up and howls at the media for covering another crash of his when there are millions of crashes every day, and he's not wrong here, especially since only minor injuries were sustained by the Model S's driver in Laguna Beach. But it, it's, like, it's like when my mom let me have a rubber band gun when I was 10. I was given strict guidelines for how it could be used, and then I went and shot my brother in the eye. I wasn't aiming for his eye, but hey, sometimes eyes get in the way of rubber band bullets. Uh, shit happens. And, and guess what happened then? Yeah, my mom took away the rubber band gun. If people continue to demonstrate that they cannot be trusted to use a technology the way it is designed to be used, then it's either designed wrong or needs to be taken away until people behave. 
And yes, I realize this could be said about motor vehicles in general, but driving is a privilege and not a right, which is this, something the state can take away from you if you are truly and repeatedly bad at it. But given that Elon's out there making my rubber band gun look lame with his flamethrowers and journalist credibility rating services, I doubt he'll have time to see the sense in my argument. But after Consumer Reports uh, knocked Tesla's Model 3 braking performance as being worse than a Ford F-150, Elon Musk had a tantrum, then said everything could be fixed with an over-the-air firmware update, presumably to recalibrate their regenerative braking and increase the performance of the actual brakes on the vehicle. Less than a week later, out goes the update, and in comes a big thumbs up from Consumer Reports, who have now bestowed their coveted recommended rating upon Tesla's smallest car. I said last week that it would have been nice for the company to get it right the first time, but I'm, I'm probably being a little harsh here because almost no company gets their vehicles right the first time. Look at Ford, who have been making vehicles for a hundred plus years. They've recalled my wife's Fusion three times now for different things in just over a year of ownership, but with the Model 3, no recalls required. They just upload a fix, your car downloads it, and boom, you're good to go with better performance. It's really honestly impressive that this is even possible now, but also as the owner of a phone that's been bricked by an over-the-air update, I can say it's not a completely foolproof plan to avoid recalls, but good on Tesla for addressing the problem swiftly. On the subject of California, uh, the state unveiled a new digital license plate this week, which it's basically an e-reader flipped on its side that displays your license plate number and has a GPS tracker um, basically allowing Big Brother to see how often you drive past your ex's house to see if someone new is staying over before you head back to your lonely apartment for a dinner of cheese and sadness. Um, the plates can also display other messages like advertisements where vehicles are parked, which of course is exactly what the world needs more of, and they can be tracked if your car is stolen by a criminal stupid enough not to remove the license plate as the very first thing they do after stealing your car. Um, they will be available for purchase through dealerships at a cost of $700. And remember, California is a two-plate sta two state, so that could mean $1,400 for a car. And that excludes installation costs and the $7 monthly subscription fee, um, which I'm not sure what you're subscribing to other than the appearance of being a sucker. Um, I could go into how pointless and stupid this is, especially considering it goes on the most vulnerable part of your car in the event of fender benders, but I think you probably get the point already. There was some racing going on this weekend uh, all over the place, starting with the Monaco Grand Prix in uh, Monaco. Uh, the famous city circuit is known for being tight and showcasing the technical skills of its drivers rather than the flat-out speed of the cars, and this year was no different. In fact, speed mattered so little that Daniel Ricciardo was able to win the race with a broken car down about 160 horsepower from Sebastian Vettel's Ferrari behind him. In fact, every single driver who finished the race finished in the same position that they started after qualifying. So apart from pit stops, no real passing, which does not a compelling race make. Speaking of uncompelling racing, the Indy 500 was also this weekend, and it was won by Will Power, who managed to go around in circles faster than all the other drivers who went around in circles. Congratulations to Fast Circle Man, Will Power. 
In more exciting racing, the inaugural America's Rallycross event took place this weekend in uh, not Americas. Uh, it's taking place of the global Rallycross series that went belly up last year, so maybe it's not too surprising to see cars racing at Silverstone in the UK. Uh, in any case, ex-German touring car racing, racer and where he was twice the champion, uh, Timo Scheider finished second in qualifying. Normally, second-place finishers and qualifying laps aren't too notable, except this one is because Timo finished it with his hood flipped up over his windshield. Stop and put it down? Ain't nobody got time for that. Especially when every second counts and you're going sideways so often, you can just use your door windows to see where you're going. And perhaps it's because the course requires so much sideways driving that the winner of the actual event was Tanner Faust, former Top Gear U.S. host who is incapable of driving in a straight line or swearing, and with whom I desperately want to be good buddies. Congrats, Tanner. What has been a key feature on concept cars for years may become a reality on the forthcoming Audi e-tron. Whereas previous U.S. law mandated that cars come equipped with side-view mirrors, a revision to that regulation, uh, we are in the age of deregulation after all, will mean car companies can now use cameras and screens instead of glass. The advantage here is that wing mirrors generate drag and can cost electric vehicles as much as three whole miles of range. So by eliminating them, car companies can get better range out of the batteries and charge you thousands more for the expensive cameras and screens instead of cheap mirrors and plastic housings. There aren't many other advantages to cameras. Glass mirrors allow you to see a 3D stereoscopic view of what's behind you because you have two eyeballs, allowing for better depth perception. Uh, they don't have screens that wash out in direct sunlight and aren't blinded by headlights when it's dark. But progress, Audi will say. To which I respond, I'd rather sacrifice three miles of charge and be able to see better what's on either side of me. Several companies announced new plans for U.S. production this week, uh, some of which I'm sure a certain politician will use as evidence that his trade war threats and tariffs are paying off, despite no credible evidence to connection. Uh, first, Hyundai is investing $388 million towards building a new plant in Alabama, where motors for the Sonata, Elantra, and Santa Fe will be built. Uh, this, of course, means more jobs for hardworking Americans, but at the same time, only 50 hardworking Americans will be able to find new work there. Uh, but Nissan, though, is going in the opposite direction, scaling back their North American production by 20% to adjust to falling profitability. Low demand has led to greater incentives and more fleet sales, which have decreased profitability for Japan's second-largest automaker. Fortunately, no employees are being let go at the two assembly plants in the U.S. and the three in Mexico, but I guess they're just going to be able to spend more time making sure all the bolts are tied on those Maximas and Rogues. Um... Right now, many governments are investing in subsidies for electric vehicles, as I mentioned earlier, and the infrastructure to support them, but that may not last too long because the same cars that governments want us to drive could end up costing them billions in lost tax revenue. Right now, gas taxes are a huge source of funding for infrastructure support, but as EVs don't use fuel, uh, that revenue could dry up. The International Energy Agency estimates that if 30% of new car truck sales by 2030 are electric, which is hugely ambitious, mind, uh, governments worldwide could be missing out on $92 billion in tax revenue. 
Obviously, that's going to have to be made up somehow, whether through a distance-driven taxes or maybe via our electric bills. Otherwise, those potholes and crumbling bridges will never be fixed. A new report by CNBC has revealed that the average monthly payment for a new vehicle is a whopping $523, in addition to the fact that loan terms are extending as far as 96 months or 8 years is becoming far more common. Average length is around 67 months, so somewhere in between 5 and 6 years, and the total amount borrowed for vehicle rests at around $31,500. All of these numbers represent unprecedented highs, which is a problem considering interest rates are also increasing, averaging now 5.17% on new vehicle loans. It's even more of a problem when you consider that, according to my buddy Chuck at the Federal Reserve, the average disposable personal income per capita is just $44,000, which equates to less than $3,700 per month. According to LendingTree, the average monthly mortgage payment's around $1,100, meaning Americans are spending more than 43% of their income just on their car and their house. That may not sound like much, but as the price of goods and services like food and health care increase, consumers are less able to afford their lifestyles. Plus, that disposable income number includes benefits and employer contributions to 401ks and pensions, so it's maybe not entirely representative of how much money people actually take home. If this sounds familiar, a similar thing happened in 2008 when housing prices were crazy high. And we all know how that turned out, but it's probably fine, guys. I mean, after all, the 90-day delinquent car loans only increased to 4.3% this past quarter. And Bloomberg reports that people are prioritizing cell phone bills over their auto loans and credit cards. With PRIQ CEO Ram Aluwaila saying the car is no longer a central asset. But it's fine. It's fine. Uh, fresh off surprising Pittsburgh's mayor with resuming autonomous vehicle testing in the city, Uber now wants to be the Amazon for transportation, according to CEO Dara Khosrowshahi. Uh, between its ride-hailing service and Uber Eats, the company is uh, doing pretty well financially, I guess, and hopes to act as a platform for all sorts of transportation solutions, including public transit, ride-sharing, and, and even biking. Um, it looks like others are buying this, too, with Japan's SoftBank having taken a large ownership stake in the company. Uh, SoftBank also announced this week that they're investing $2.25 billion in GM Cruise, General Motors' autonomous vehicle division, which may open up some doors for Uber to test vehicles other than Volvos. Um, it'll also allow GM to operate on Uber's platform. But more than just some Japanese money, Uber wants our money as well, and is on course for an initial public offering next year, where individuals with more hope than brains can spend their hard-earned money to purchase stock in a company that's still burning cash and doesn't really have a solid path towards profitability, at least until its autonomous program cuts out all its human drivers. But Skynet doesn't go live until 2047 and most Terminator timelines, so I think we're good for a little while if you want to get in on the ground floor. Uh, Jaguar Land Rover announced this week that they are developing a system called Cortex, a project that hopes to develop level 4 and level 5 automation for off-road driving. Uh, currently, autonomous systems rely on digital road mapping pretty extensively, so an off-road system would have to depend more on cameras evaluating the terrain ahead and adjusting the vehicle correspondingly. In theory, this will render the Cortex system more advanced and reliable than most other systems at adapting to unplanned changes and conditions. 
Um, head of the company's Connected and Autonomous Vehicle Research Program, Chris Holmes, said, It's important that we develop our self-driving vehicles with the same capabilities and performance customers expect from all Jaguars and Land Rovers, which I can appreciate. What I can't appreciate is someone wanting to take their car off-road, but wanting the car to do all the driving when you're actually off-road. It's like designing a race car to drive itself, but with a race car driver as a passenger. That doesn't make any sense. Um, if you've been on YouTube, and I'll assume you have, uh, you've probably known that, that there's a video for how to fix virtually anything, and many of those fixes involve duct tape. Uh, now there's a video of how you can repair a flat tire with duct tape, except repair is kind of the wrong word, but uh, really replace. Uh, some intrepid MacGyvers who had a wheel without rubber decided to see what would happen if they wrapped the wheel in 20 rolls of duct tape, and the results are uh, somewhat surprising in that the car definitely functioned afterwards. Uh, granted, the non-sticky side offers virtually no grip, will tear under any torque, and is utterly and completely unbalanced on the wheel. Uh, you can actually drive on a tire made of duct tape. That said, 20 rolls of duct tape cannot possibly be cheaper than a tire, so please leave this where it belongs as a goofy stunt done by some YouTube people. Um, I've driven a Prius or two in my time, and not being the type of person who really appreciates driving in a super efficient sort of way, uh, I can't say I really appreciated the car. Uh, now, though, some nutjobs have gone and vastly improved the car by taking pretty much everything and throwing it out. Um, the standard second-generation Prius body of the vehicle is the only thing that remains, uh, but because it now resides on a tube frame that happens to also house the motor from a Dodge Challenger Hellcat, uh, which has been upped from its 707 horsepower to put down 800 at the wheels, whereas the normal second-generation Prius took about 10 seconds to get to 60 miles an hour, this car now takes less than 10 seconds to go an entire quarter mile and makes a divine sound while doing so. Uh, as for gas mileage, I'm going to guess somewhere in the neighborhood of three or four, which does seem a bit thirsty, uh, especially when compared with the original. Um, I've been catching up with the Grand Tour recently, which is a, a good show with some funny old guys that feels like, a, it feels like an old couch, comfy, familiar, and uh, a little stale. Uh, in comparison, Top Gear in the post-Chris Evans seasons feels fresh and entertaining and fun, and I find myself wishing for more episodes of it rather than the Grand Tour. Uh, one of the reasons it's been so good is Matt LeBlanc, who unfortunately has announced that he will be leaving the show after the next series because of time and travel constraints. I get it. He's American and has to go through to the UK for filming, which takes him away from his family and friends for a considerable amount of time. In any case, Top Gear will continue on with Chris Harris, who is also excellent, and Rory Reed, who is a genuinely funny guy, but who will replace Joey? And don't say Chandler Bing. <clears throat> In an inconvenient-for-this-podcast-timed presentation tomorrow, Fiat Chrysler CEO Sergio Marchionne will outline the next five-year plan for the company's car brands, a brand he will or a plan he will not oversee since this is his last year in charge of the company. Uh, in the last plan set forth in 2014, titled Our Time Has Come, Marchione stated that the Chrysler would have eight vehicles in its lineup by 2018, including two plug-in hybrids. 
As of last count, Chrysler has two cars, the Pacifica and the 300, and I guess three if you count the Pacifica Hybrid as a separate vehicle, but still nowhere near eight total models. Gone is the Week 200 and planned 100 compact sedan, and various crossovers uh, never really appeared. Fiat Chrysler apparently got distracted with its brands that were actually doing well, namely Jeep, Ram, and Ferrari, and didn't really put any effort into either Fiat or Chrysler, both of which have crappy, unappealing lineups that are struggling to move cars amid poor reviews and a complete lack of buyer interest. How crappy, you ask? Well, the company has had to f recall 4.8 million vehicles this week because their cruise control may not turn off, which seems sort of like a pretty important thing to be able to turn off. Apparently, braking still works to slow the car, but people are idiots and may panic if their car doesn't slow when they disengage cruise control. Uh, rumor now has it that Marchioni will announce tomorrow that Fiat will exit the U.S. market and Chrysler will exit the rest of the world, remaining for sale only in the U.S. But my question is, why stop there? Chrysler has destroyed any sort of goodwill it had in buyers loyal to the brand, uh, not coming out with anything new recently, and the Pacifica could just become the Dodge Caravan, or the Grand Caravan, because that's really the only uh, attractive vehicle left. Waymo just ordered 62,000 Pacificas for its autonomous fleet. Kill off the ancient 300, and you have nothing left to keep the Chrysler brand going. I'll follow up on this next week when I hear more, but it's probably not going to be too surprising if, just like Plymouth and most of Ford, we say goodbye to Chrysler. Finally this week, Porsche Classic magazine published an article recently addressing the issue of investors buying classic Porsches in order to profit from their appreciation rather than drive them. The author called out such buyers for, quote, spoiling the market and causing an explosion in prices even for normal Porsche vehicles. Uh, this is largely true, with prices for even basic air-cooled 993 models just skyrocketing due to the desire of people just to buy and sit on cars until someone wants to pay them more for it than they paid. I, I appreciate good design and vehicular beauty, and I think that some cars, sports cars especially, could be considered works of art. So in that sense, I appreciate why one might want to preserve such art. But like good artwork, great cars should be appreciated. You appreciate art by studying it and appreciating its form, and you appreciate cars by driving them. The article goes on to say, quote, The speculation in which many dealers are currently indulging is heading towards the downright immoral, end quote, and I have a hard time disagreeing. But as baby boomers pass on and the generation saddled with $1.4 trillion in student loan debt comes up, these prices are fall back down. They have to, because otherwise the market just won't exist. Now for some new cars. Brand new, brand new, brand new. I don't like it unless it's brand new. You might see me in my well with my If you love the Nissan Murano convertible, then you are probably not listening to a podcast for automotive enthusiasts. But on the off chance you are, I have great news because Nissan have just chopped the top off another one of their cars that is completely inappropriate to act as a convertible. This time it was the Nissan Leaf, which is not a production car, but rather the engineer's idea of having fun to celebrate the sale of 100,000 Nissan Leafs in Japan. Honestly, we don't have enough electric convertibles out there, so I don't mind the idea here, but the execution is uh, ugly. Uh, good thing nobody will ever be able to buy it. 
As for cars you can buy if you're somewhat rich, Mercedes-AMG have announced the new E53 sedan, which uses a 3-liter 6-cylinder and hybrid motor motor, motor to achieve 429 horsepower and 384 foot-pounds of torque. It'll hit 60 in 4.4 seconds and row its own way through nine speeds in the gearbox all the way up to 130 miles an hour where it's electronically limited by people who know you really aren't talented enough to go faster than that. Uh, It starts at just $74,000, which seems like a lot for a six-cylinder engine, but you do get a lot of power here. What I think is most interesting about this and the other E53s is that several new cars from AMG are just starting to use hybrid powertrains to achieve greater output rather than just stuffing in larger displacement motors or fitting it with two or four turbos. I think that's a trend that you'll start seeing more commonly. Um, If you're an Eastern European oil oligarch who loves driving around but just can't for fear of being shot at by angry peasants whose lives you've crushed with an iron fist of capitalism, I have great news. Uh, There's a new bulletproof vehicle made exclusively for you. No, it's not a Mercedes, BMW, Rolls-Royce, because those sort of flashy things would surely draw attention, and attention means one thing. Rocket-propelled grenades from old Soviet weapons caches. And good luck finding an RPG-proof car that won't cost you a private island or two. No, what we have here is the delightfully basic-looking Skoda Superb Estate. Because you'll appreciate the cargo capacity of a wagon for hauling your crates of caviar to your yacht that just so happens to reside on the other side of the Crimea. But don't worry, just because this car could easily be confused for a regular family station wagon doesn't mean you have to stoop so low as to spend just a few grand. No, this will cost you nearly $160,000, which is a small price to pay for safety, but a price high enough to say to your oil baron friends, I didn't cheap out. Unfortunately, it does come with a 2-liter diesel 4-cylinder, so it will still sound cheap and isn't likely to outrun any gangs of domestic terrorists with all its body armor weighing it down. But I think the safe assumption here is that you can sacrifice a couple of bodyguards in a decoy car and come away scot-free. Unfortunately, this week, uh, we do have an obituary to report. Um, It's that time of year again when motorcyclists gather on the Isle of Man in the United Kingdom to ride their bikes as fast as they can around the island, uh, reinforcing the fact that this is the deadliest race of all time. Another rider has already lost their life this year. Dan Kneen died uh, after losing control of his BMW on the very first lap of the 37-mile-long course. Uh, To add to the chaos, a safety vehicle responding to his crash hit another rider, injuring that rider as well. As for Kneen, he was no stranger to the course. Uh, In fact, he's from the Isle of Man and has been riding motorcycles professionally since 2008. He made his mountain course debut at the Manx Grand Prix in 2008 and won the Junior Newcomers C and Ultra Lightweight MGP races, a feat that had never before been accomplished. Uh, He won his first tourist trophy podium just last year and had a bright future ahead of him. Sincere condolences to the family of Dan Kneen. Motorcycle is very, very dangerous, and the Isle of Man is absolutely unforgiving. Finally this week, it was announced today that Donald Trump's trade war has officially begun. Under the auspices of security, the boy who cried terrorism is using the most basic of tools to try to coerce other nations into playing economics on terms that he views are more fair, and he's getting there the only way he knows how, by bullying other countries into complying. Uh, 
the price? Well, higher prices for everyone on many, many things. As steel and aluminum tariffs go into effect tomorrow, cars become more expensive to produce locally, which could cost jobs and will definitely cost consumers when they go to purchase their next car, even if it's made in America. Add to that suggestion that Trump wants to implement a 25% tariff on cars in an effort to banish German cars from our shores, despite the fact that many BMWs are actually made on U.S. soil, it means that it'll be more expensive to buy cars that aren't made here, too. It's not just limited to cars, either, as people are feeling the squeeze of tighter debt on everything from mortgages to student loans to cars. We, as Americans, could seriously be hurting in the next few years. So, what's the goal here? Basically, it's to try to get China and other countries to sit down and agree to more favorable trade terms that reduce our deficit but don't effectively make much difference in finances, jobs, quality of life for most people. There's a reason this move and protectionism in general is widely panned among economists, business people, and folks who, I don't know, read things. Uh, you can't be more blunt than Bloomberg, who ran the headline today, Trade Wars Are Bad for Business. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say that uh, that is not a news outlet that Trump probably pays attention to. So in that regard, things are looking kind of bleak. But then I also read a headline today that said that the Ferrari 488 pizza was faster to 60 than a Bugatti Chiron. And rather than making me think, wow, that Ferrari is pretty damn quick, which it is, it made me think, how amazing is it for Bugatti that when performance figures are announced for someone else's car, their car makes it into the headline? Which sort of struck me as an allegory for the United States. It's embarrassing to be in the news so often for such bad-sounding things. But like the Bugatti Chiron, America is the world's benchmark for how countries ought to be. So while Sweden and Denmark and Austria may have higher qualities of life or greater per capita income or better chocolates, I guess, we have to remember we're America, the self-anointed free world where we have an immigration problem because it's so great here that millions of people want to defy the odds to live here. And no matter how bad the news sounds or what adversity we have to go through with various political anguish and, and global strife, we're still the best damn country in the world. By whose measure, you ask? Ours, because it's the only opinion that matters. So basically... Thank you guys for listening, and thanks to Nicholas Falcon for our intro song. I'll leave you today with the sounds of an 800-horsepower Toyota Prius tearing up the drag strip because there's nothing more American than taking a Japanese car, stripping it of damn near everything, and throwing a big bore V8 in it, setting it loose on a straight line. Here, friends, is your moment of zen. 